0: I feel absolutely disgusted with the hubris of academic research. How did we ever get to the place where we're satisfied when we define high-value evidence from research that controls for most real-life factors or variables? Supposedly good research controls for circumstances, settings, and populations until the research becomes so vanilla as to be meaningless to me and you. How can we expect people to use vanilla research to make decisions when it excludes people like them, excludes women, people of color, the homeless, the incarcerated, those with rare diseases, and only includes able bodied people? or mostly people treated in academic medical centers. Research that barely knows how to use person recorded data, can't figure out how to track people's decisions or the outcomes of those decisions over time, finds claims and medical records data to be the strongest data, can't figure out how to correct medical record data errors. I get how complex this is. But where did we find so few resources to continually learn and get out of this rut? It's just not good enough. I'm tired of the excuses. We don't have interoperable data. We don't have sufficient standards. We don't have tested methodology. We don't have single person ID. Yeah, the excuses are truly massive challenges. Yet it's not good enough that we stop after we do the easy stuff. Okay, I take that back. It's not easy. But it's what we have an industry for, systems, processes, and money, to do that kind of research. But we haven't figured out how to take the next step to make it meaningful to more people. Oh my God, what a rant I just gave you. Let's narrow this frustration to medical decision-making. I know, it's not so narrow. We know that making decisions, choices, about our health is complicated. We know that making choices as individuals relying on studies of populations, groups of people, is fraught. As much art as science. Awareness of disparities in healthcare delivery and research just adds to the fraughtness. I don't think that's even a word. I've been perseverating for decades about decisions people and their clinician partners make, tracking those decisions and the resulting outcomes in real time, or at least over time. In my naivety, I thought this was brilliant and simple. I bear my humility here once again, but like a dog with a bone, I can't let go. Today. I want to add to the complexity by speaking with two informaticists, asking them about the dilemma from their specialized point of view. Informaticists are experts in information, data, and decision-making. Bryn Rhodes and Laura Martial specialize in creating, testing, and implementing apps for clinicians and patients while making decisions together. Bryn Rhodes has been a software developer for more than 20 years, focusing on information and database management and applications. He has been a member of the Health E-Decisions and the Clinical Quality Framework Initiatives, CQF. He's worked on the problem of sharing executable clinical knowledge and is currently working on bringing the standards that have been developed in the CQF initiative to fire. F-H-I-R or Fast Healthcare Interoperable Resources. FHIR standards define how healthcare information can be exchanged between different computer systems regardless of how it's stored in those systems. It allows healthcare information to be available securely to those who need to access it and those who have the right to do so for the benefit of a patient receiving care. Laura Martial is a data scientist from RTI. RTI is an independent nonprofit institution that provides research, development, and technical services to government and commercial clients worldwide. Full disclosure, I serve as an independent consultant to this independent institute. Laura describes herself as a human-centered design enthusiast working in clinical decision support development, implementation, health IT evaluation. That's information technologies evaluation. Laura Marcial understands both the human and the tech sides of clinical decision support and has several years of explaining it to me and to us. Today's episode is Laura's third as our guest. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of healthcare, Let's make some sense of all of this. Welcome. I really appreciate the both of you, Laura and Bryn, joining us this morning. I wanted to start with, as a way of introduction, when did you first realize that health was fragile? Laura, you want to start?
1: Sure. So I guess I've been working in the health domain um, after growing up as a, a doctor's child, but for most of my adult life. And I would say that there was a period um, where I was a young mom trying to help my, my clinical father in the, navigate major procedure. And we were trying to determine what was the right path and ended up going to really dozens of of clinical appointments to make a determination about which path would work the best for him. It was definitely an eye opener. How complicated the system is, how manual the process can be, like one of the key issues was passing around medical images, getting them to the right people, making sure that everyone was looking at the same thing, making sure that it was the right kind of information to make a decision. Yeah, that was a, a, definitely a complicated process. And and then the whole time I was railing it. Why isn't this easier? Why is this so difficult that you really have to know what you're doing and how to navigate the system?
0: Yeah. How about you, Brin?
2: I don't know that's a really hard question. I guess it would be when I was in probably elementary school and my mother was diagnosed with m s that would probably be when I didn't really understand what was going on, but yeah, and I knew you know it wasn't good, so yeah, that'd probably be it,
0: so you were in elementary school, so probably you weren't thinking about decisions that were being made now your career is involved with health decision making so how did that how did you first be start becoming aware of that there were decisions to be made in health and medical care
2: I guess it was probably pretty late in my in my in my life but I remember, taking my um, father-in-law to an appointment and halfway through the appointment, the nurse realizing that they couldn't perform the procedure that had been scheduled because of an operation that my father-in-law had a long time ago. (laughs) And that's a decision that I knew decisions were being made, but it was my first kind of firsthand experience with a mistake, if you will. Mm -hmm. And had the right information been available, that wouldn't have happened. That's not a life-threatening situation, but it's an example of sharing of the appropriate information leading to a a mistaken decision. And that was something that really kicked me in that direction of how do we make sure that this kind of information is available and that those kinds of, now it's a very simple mistake and Mm -hmm. it goes up from there.
0: (laughs) So. The reason that I wanted to talk with the two of you was that, that it seems like all these decisions are being made and there are decision aids, guidelines that help people, whether they are clinicians or patients or caregivers, help them make the decisions. And So people choose. They choose A, they choose B, they choose C, or they don't choose at all. And but then it's then what happens? Choices are made for so many different reasons, some of it based on science, some of it based on circumstances, but a a decision is made. And it doesn't seem like we systematically keep track of the decisions that are being made, and then what were the outcomes? And I guess my question for you guys is, first of all, is that true? Is my assumption true? And then what are the challenges in the informatics realm? What are the challenges of actually doing that? Bryn, you want to start with that?
2: Sure. It's true in general, right? We don't tend to track the outcome in a way that lends itself to learning from that outcome from a system perspective. Mm -hmm. There are lots and lots of specific studies that do control for all the variables and, and and establish outcomes and and try to learn from that. And that's really where we are in terms of being able to contribute to that decision-making. The challenges are, how do you get to that level of rigor that's needed to really establish a result when you're not designing the experiment, so to speak, uh, from the beginning, right when you're just dealing with data, with real-world data that's coming through, and part of it is that we don't capture the outcome. But part of that is because we don't necessarily know that we need to, and maybe maybe we didn't track the particulars that need to be tracked, and so you get you get a lot of retrospective trying to understand what happened and using. Proxies for the real data that you need. Well, oh, it was this kind of, it was this kind of visit, so it must have been this kind of blood pressure reading, and that's it's just ambiguous. And mm-hmm. not having that level of detail on the data means that you can't really trust it to the level that you need to establish a result.
0: Perhaps the sequence to action based on research, is research completed, findings shared, and used by people and clinicians, choice decision-making, then decision acted upon. But that's not the end point. What was the actual outcome of that decision acted upon? High blood pressure found. Guidelines say take drug X and change habit Y. Drug X is prescribed. Habit Y is changed. Did the blood pressure come down? What else happened, unintended or otherwise? What do we know about the person's context and the data? What did we learn? Bryn is talking about outcomes, not the decisions made. I asked Laura to help me out framing a question.
1: Sure. I, just a couple of responses. So I think Brendan, you're totally right that part of the nature of the problem is the what to collect, when to collect it, how to basically manage the outcome piece of things. And I think the gold standard here is something like a clinical trial where everything is highly constrained and the um, outcomes of interest are where we control for other factors. But with real world data in real world situations, it's much harder to control for other factors. That said, I think there's also this sort of series of parallel paths. So we're working on looking at interventions that may disrupt that process in a way that helps us collect outcomes, information for specific decisions. And yet the workflow associated with making a decision and then implementing a change as a result of that decision. So a change in a medication or a order for a lab or a referral to another provider, those aren't well connected yet. The ideas around generating information to support decision making and then executing on a decision and then what happened as a result of the decision, they're all running in parallel paths and not very well connected that's at least the case if they are all running effectively or not. Yeah.
0: So I come at this from a different point of view and that is that, okay, so these controlled studies have been done and, and decision aids or guidelines are built around that. And so the recommendations or the evidence is around specific diagnoses, specific circumstances. But then it's like, if we're starting to think about the disparities of people in their backgrounds, in their circumstances, in their environments, okay, so let's get broader and be able to say, okay, who did this really work for in real life? And so uh, so it just frustrates me that this this need to, like, control so much, whereas life is not that controlled. And wouldn't we be building a, a data set of... Broader circumstances and broader diversity, if we were able to collect this information. And so, in a way, it would seem maybe it would be pretty good information versus grade A information. I just don't know how, I don't, I feel like we stop before it's really meaningful to more people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have some thoughts there, Brent?
2: Yeah, it's challenging because I hear you and I understand the, the concern and the frustration with why can't we just share all the data and everybody, but that every data point comes with a bunch of context and the further away from the actual clinical process that data point is, in terms of where it's collected, the more context is lost. And even in cases where it's collected right at the point of care, there's not necessarily the context captured that's needed.
0: Will you give an example of that context?
2: Yeah, so blood pressure. So I recently broke my right fifth metacarpal <laughs> and and I've been working in this field for a long time now and thinking about all the decisions and what kind of measures I was going to show up on and what kind of what kind of things were the doctors going to get dinged for if they didn't do when they saw me and one of the things was a blood pressure reading and it was high and they said that's normal for having a, an injury of this kind Uh, you know, it's not unexpected. So nothing, nothing about it, but maybe it, maybe it really is high. We don't know. (laughs) And on a follow-up visit, no, no blood pressure was taken. Now that obviously that's totally unrelated to the injury, but the blood pressure reading that's associated with that visit being abnormally high will probably show up on a measure somewhere. But was the context that it's part of an injury captured as part of that blood pressure reading.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's again, it's a very simple example. Yeah. but that's the kind of context that isn't always captured with the specificity that's needed in order to really make use of the data. And even saying something like make use of the data, what for what purpose? if it's if it's for a quality measure that's specifically looking for blood pressure control, you need a lot of information about that blood pressure reading in order to make sure that it's valid. And that context is key, not only for just having it be available, but for knowing what kinds of things you want to use it for. And that I think is the real challenge because you, don't, you can't just take data from a visit that's unrelated and, and apply it universally in any situation.
0: That makes so much sense.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's, and so it's hard, right? It's yeah, challenging. Yeah. I think there's a lot of really, if the, the more focused you get with an application, the more confidence you have that the data you're collecting as part of that application matches the clinical intent of the workflow in the application. And so if you have an EHR that's a very general purpose tool, right, that covers literally thousands and thousands of use cases. Mm -hmm. The data that you collect in those workflows is not necessarily going to match the clinical intent of the use case that's being served. So it's challenging.
3: Yeah.
2: (laughs) For lots and lots of reasons.
0: Let's unpack that for a second. The EHR, the electronic health record, is a general purpose tool covering thousands of use cases. Software engineers think in use cases. Most people think of a scenario, a situation with a patient, a diagnosis, and a clinician. Many people have similar use cases. High blood pressure after an injury is a use case. So is high blood pressure with diabetes. So is high blood pressure after a bonk on the head, or high blood pressure and glaucoma. The electronic medical record, a general-purpose tool, needs to work for all of those scenarios, also known as use cases. So see where context fits in? So, let's just posit that money funding is not a limitation and that what we want to do is increase the learning that we can do the ongoing learning we can do post research that the this idea of that we we came up with these guidelines about treating blood pressure and that, and we did it in with limited, again, limited populations, limited settings, and we came up with something. And then we wanted to continue the study for ever larger groups of people by and c- collecting useful data routinely over time. What would that take in inform in yeah, on, on the information records level? What would it take to be able to continue those <clears throat>
2: studies? Right. To me, the real gap is the the distance between the people that can make the systems behave the way that they need to. And the people that have the domain expertise and understanding and clinical expertise to know what the workflow is and what the data means and how it should be reasoned Mm -hmm. over. And that gap is too big because it's too specialized in both directions, right? There's this giant kind of gulf between software engineers on the one hand and clinical experts on the other. If you think about the problem in terms of how can we best support the creation of systems that match clinical intent, if you start from an approach that that recognizes that's what you're doing. You're building a clinical system and you involve informatics and clinical expertise throughout that process in a way that lets them not only, you know, participate in the requirements and, and gathering and all of that, but actually in the definition, in the expression of logic involved and the reasoning that's required. Then I think you start to close that gap and Mm -hmm. that's where I think you get to places where you have systems that collect data that matches clinical intent and captures appropriate content because it's part of a clinical workflow. And if you have that and you have a blood pressure, for example, measure and process that you're working through and you've, you've built it in that way. Then you have some confidence in the data that's mm-hmm. collected and that the appropriate context was established whenever that data was collected.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Laura, what do you think?
1: I guess, and just a couple of comments, yeah, to take from what Bryn said that I know sometimes we've used the analogy and maybe it's lost at a certain point, but I think it does work at basic building blocks. But infrastructure like highways and um, bridges and things, what we've been working toward is some sort of rules of the road, some rules of engagement, some standards that help us interoperate this data, move it from place to place or exchange it and in a meaningful way, and then some infrastructure to support that. And I think, yeah, what, what we're saying here is that some of that infrastructure is pretty non-specific. It's pretty not so specialized. And, and we've been working harder to make it more specific to the clinical problem and more specific to a clinical solution, being able to connect pieces of information that come from the patient and pieces of information that come from clinical training and bring them together in terms of making a decision and then um, chasing an outcome looking toward a path that may improve quality of life for a specific person in a specific way high blood pressure being a good example it's important to keep trying to to chase that down but there are pressures at, at every step in the sequence pressure from the kind of quality measure world to develop a way of looking at those outcomes as a succinct concise sort of quality measure. And then certainly there are pressures from the patient perspective to try to achieve an outcome that improves their, their lives. So manages blood pressure, for example, and, and ensures you know that they don't develop secondary or additional disease processes as a result of not managing the blood pressure. But I think that the overall story here is that it's not super straightforward. It isn't the matter of just hopping in your car, which you can then drive down the road. It isn't. There are some things that are the same, and there's some infrastructure that we can, there are some roads we can lay down here to make this easier. And I think that that's a path that we're on: is what kinds of roads can we lay down? So, in terms of what is a holy grail? What is without money being consideration? Without with everyone sort of playing nice together. I think is there um, is there like an app store environment for clinicians to try to access the tools that they think will serve them best in interacting with their patients. I know that clinicians are configuring electronic health record environments to the best of their ability. To actually match the workflow they think will work best for their patient population, and yeah, we've been working on the development of applications that can support some of those kinds of activities and actually improve the movement of information from patients to providers and and then from providers back to patients in terms of making clinical decisions and supporting them.
0: Now, a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at Abridge.com, A B R I D G E.com, or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. Let's resume with today's guests Bryn Rhodes and Laura Martial, specializing in creating, testing, and implementing apps that clinicians and patients can use while making decisions together. Laura, can you help me? let's try to summarize a little bit when i have talked to the, about this to lay people they're like it's a no brainer and when i talk to technical people it's like impossible if if i wanted to if we wanted to say to lay people why this is such a challenge what would we say
1: I think Bryn uh, brings up a great point that some of this, just like we described in terms of RCTs or randomized clinical trials, in order to do good science or do good research or develop a more solid, robust clinical practice guideline, you need to, to control for outside factors. So you do these pieces of research in silos, not completely disconnected, but very highly controlled and then you generalize from there. You take that that guideline or principle and say, let's put it into practice. And that putting that act action of putting into practice means that you're moving it into the wild. You're moving it to the real world. And I think the what what we underestimate is how we can model the complexity of the real world in a meaningful way and result in kind of clinical practice guidelines that are robust or strong enough to, to support influencing care decision-making. So that, I guess that means that when a person has an individual problem that they're trying to solve and they're bringing that to their clinician, they feel like it's really straightforward. But in fact, clinicians trained to think about other potential disease processes, other factors, maybe external, maybe biological, who knows, to make a treatment, to help make a treatment decision. We'll bring their experience with patients, their expertise in terms of what they know from their clinical training and and what they've learned from and about the patient. I think what we're trying to do is say that we want to capture at least decisions and their outcomes in in that conversation or in that process. And decisions happen in real time. Sometimes they happen very quickly. If we think about the situation with COVID and how quickly some treatment decisions are having to be made and then actions taken and without really a lot of solid evidence in in many cases, it's a process that can really turn information um, around really quickly. So I think in the, in the, perfect sense in our heads, this idea that we can capture data that's meaningful at different time points that would really help us see how a a clinical recommendation is connected to a decision which is connected to an outcome. And then that outcome reinforms that clinical guidance to begin with, that clinical practice guideline. It sounds good. It's easy to draw on a piece of paper, but it's much harder to build.
0: Thank you for that. There's such hubris in this, in the sense that we think, and here I am eyeball deep in research. I'm on the board of PCORI. And yet, we think that by doing these studies and laying things out in very specific, narrow circumstances, is the decisions that are going to work in real life. When there is so much variety and so much excluded, it's
2: just hubris. Um, That's an interesting take. I think it's actually caution, right? Because what Laura is saying is the complexity is recognized, right? You have to get to that level of control to establish a result with a level of statistical significance that you can used to say yeah this is this is an effective decision to be made in this case but there are so many variables that are controlled in order to get to that level of confidence in the data when we say apply this decision because we've established that it works in this scenario i think there's a tremendous amount of caution that comes with a guideline and that there's a huge amount of effort that goes into making sure that the recommendation being made is supported by the evidence. And there are whole frameworks, right, related to and whole fields of people that are dedicated to figuring out how best to communicate the level of confidence and support that the evidence has for a particular decision and surfacing that when a recommendation is made as part of decision support.
0: So then, but... I'll wrap this up but (laughs) I I have to say that so many of these studies are not done for example with women or they're they're not done with people who live rurally or people of color and so then to think that thank you this is wonderful I really appreciate thank you guys so much I really appreciate that thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah, no Thank worries.
1: You, Thank you. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank bye. you. Have a good day. Bye bye. Happy New Year.
0: Data is not information. Information is not action. Data by itself only takes up space, ink on paper, and bites on a drive. Data cooked into information can result in action, could lead to action. Decisions made, habits changed, treatment completed, medicine taken, peace of mind attained are actions. To transform data into information, people... That's patients, clinicians, researchers, informaticists, designers, companies. Add context, values, history, culture, biases. Sometimes people use algorithms, the super fast crunching of data, to transform that data into information. But it's still all done by people. Even with radical transparency, We can't possibly know all the context, values, history, culture, and biases that transform data into information. The bridge between data and information requires infrastructure, standards, methods, communities, hardwired collaborations between stakeholders. As Bryn said about informaticists, clinicians, and patients, not to mention academic researchers, developers, health systems, government. The action also requires infrastructure, communities of support, money, and hope. Perhaps we could put as much energy into understanding and building infrastructure and methods for context and action as academic research. Would that get us closer to my pie-in-the-sky desire to better understand the ongoing impact of decisions on individuals and groups that look like each of us? Oh, goodness, the complexity boggles my mind. Although I am almost 70 and a white man of privilege, I often think of myself as little 8-year-old Danny Van Leeuwen, bewildered and unsettled. What can I, we do? What actions can I, we take? We can be curious. We can ask questions. We can listen. We can network. We can participate, expect, partner, adapt, invest, and hope. Thank you. Onward. the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.